Welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie. I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. Hi, everyone. My name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers. That's it. That's all I got today. That's it? No joke. No joke. No silliness. Nothing. On the rails. Who are you? (laughs) We're here to pull the curtain back on medical research, so hopefully you feel more informed and that you can trust the outcomes of research or what goes on behind the scenes a little bit more. And today we're doing our first ever Q and A episode. So some of you um, have been kind enough. What does Q and A stand for, Debbie? Gosh, acronyms. Everyone. Oh, uh, quasits <laughs> and ASMR. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's little, little tiny feedings and angels. Okay. Not what you thought, but that's where we're going. No, so we're switching genres to a D&D live play right now. Get your dice <laughs> right out. Now. Buckle up, everyone. <laughs> Roll for initiative. No. Um, questions and answers, Elise. Q&A stands for questions and answers. Wow. I'm learning so much today already. I, I feel like you're being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. I know what Q&A stands for, Debbie. I'm cutting this whole nonsense out. You can't. Um, <laughs> I do what I want. <laughs> so, yeah, it's our first ever Q&A episode. So thank you to everybody who sent questions in. Um, we're going to we're gonna dive right in and get to them. So, Elise, do you want to read the questions and I'll do the answers? Absolutely. By the way, friends, all of these questions came in in advance, so I'm not being blindsided by any of them. I have done a little bit of research for some or most of them. Okay. Uh, first question, Debbie, what is the difference between clinical research and clinical trials? Aha, this is a great question. This came in anonymously, or the person who sent it in didn't want us to read their name out, which is totally cool. Um, clinical research generally is broadly defined as anything that's kind of patient oriented research, uh, which is a, a big umbrella term, right? Covers a lot of different things. So, many types of studies or trials are under this umbrella, including uh, studies of human disease mechanisms, natural history studies of disease, epidemiological studies, studies of technologies or procedures that are used to diagnose, um, prevent or treat human disease. Any research that looks at outcomes or health services research, right? Is it better if we structure our health service like this way with doctors and nurses or that way with nurse practitioners and and dispensing specialists? So clinical research um, is is any and all of those things. Very broad uh, umbrella. And broadly, we break it down into the two, two pieces of observational, looking at data but not doing anything, or interventional research where we actually do stuff to patients with their consent, right? Would you say that that's also... Because I know I know we've also used the terms interventional and non-interventional. Is non-interventional the same as observational in this case? Yeah. Okay. Uh, clinical trials, like the randomised, double-blind, or mass trials that we've talked about, are one type of clinical research, Right way back we talked about um dr andrew wakefield right who did those case studies or case series studies looking at individuals or several individuals um reporting on a disease or a condition of interest so that's kind of one type of research right but that's not a clinical trial a clinical trial is i'm planning to do these specific things with or around my patients or to look at these specific data from the patients that this kind of stuff has already happened with. Mm -hmm. So 
there are lots of different kinds of clinical research, clinical trials, the, the randomised double-blind or mass studies. They're kind of like the gold standard, but they're not the only thing that goes on. Sort of case report or case series studies or cross-sectional studies are, are often used where you evaluate everybody, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of research participants at one time point. Like you take a cross-section across humanity in a, in a particular way. They, we don't follow up with them over time. It's like a snapshot. Or you can also look at a snapshot of people over a longer period of time. So all of these things are clinical research, but clinical trials are the we are planning to do these kinds of things with the people or look at these kinds of data. It's a subset. It's a circle within the Venn diagram. So it's like a squares and rectangles. All clinical trials are clinical research, but not all clinical research are clinical trials. Exactly. Exactly. Great. You ready for the next question? Next question. Okay, from some of my work friends, they want to know, is dental clinical research governed differently than non-dental research since dentistry and all other medicines are quite separated, at least in the U.S.? Yes, and it's the same here, right? You have a separate GP to your dentist. You don't have medical personnel who are both body and mouth specialists, which is wild, right, that they separate it in that way. So weird. But okay. Um, whatever. I, I, I thought this question was was really interesting, uh, and it's interesting because it's it's not one that I had ever thought of. It hadn't even crossed my mind because ICHGCP, International Council on Harmonisation's Good Clinical Practice Guidelines, does say research should be overseen by like a doctor or dentist. Mm. But I never even thought about that. I was just like, okay, cool, put them all in one thing. And I've never worked on a dentistry study. But I think if we go back to basic principles, right, it is in GCP that research can be led by either a doctor or a dentist, depending on who is the right medical profession to oversee the thing. Research is used to get approval for new drugs, devices or ways of treating patients. So, yes, in the current structure that we have, dentistry is separate from the rest of medicine. I don't know why, but it is. But the rules are the same. If you want to get a drug approved for treating something tooth, mouth, jaw related, you still have to go through the same processes as you would to treat something on your skin, lungs, intestines, etc. The lead researchers on it will be dentists rather than medical doctors. That's the difference. But the the rules are the same. The the governance, which is what the the question from your colleagues was, is the same. Uh, There is an excellent, I believe, Sawbones episode about the reason why dentistry and other medical practices are... Separate? Yeah, and the very short answer, which I highly recommend the episode because it's so interesting. I love Sawbones. They're they're just excellent and hilarious. Yes, uh, but the basic reason is that... Okay, so like dentistry was already like kind of like midwifery, right? It was already kind of like a separate thing that was happening. And then when Mm -hmm. medicine became a thing, they were like they there was like contention. Like, no, we don't do that uh, because that's what those people over there do. And like, this is what we do. And between like dentists and medical doctors, they very intentionally were like, oh, it's your mouth. You better go see a dentist. That's not doctors. Mm. And eventually people were like, Turns out your mouth and teeth are part of your whole body. Uh, And at that point, it was so deeply entrenched in the medical training system and everything. Anyway, the episode is absolutely worth listening to because there's so much that I don't remember and can't accurately, like, repeat back um, about the drama that was involved in that Mm. um, evolution of science. But it's very good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'll check that out. Too easy. Okay, uh, so what's going to start sounding very familiar every time I talk? A question from Lauren. Oh, (laughs) my best friend. My best friend. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, question from Lauren. If we wanted to find current or historical research on a particular topic, drug, or disease, how, where? Great question, Lauren. What a great best friend. This is a terrible answer that I'm going to give, but honestly, it's Google it. Other search engines are available. We're not sponsored. Because so much information now is out there in the public domain. And thank goodness, because research transparency is really important. So you can often find older research studies that have been published and just go snooping about and see what the results are saying. Or you can find my favourite thing, which is a meta-analysis, where a clever sort of soul has collected together a bunch of similar research studies. And the aim is then to, to use statistics to get an estimate closest to the truth, looking at that combination of studies. Mm-hmm. And often the great thing about meta-analyses is they'll, they'll pick apart the methodology of the studies where they were strong when they were weak and that's a really good thing to kind of to start learning about if you're interested in in research because not every study are you going to be able to trust the results as much right Mm -hmm. you've got to be critically thinking in your reading of research which means look at the number of people involved if it's one person if it's like a case study don't dismiss it but also look for the research across tens or hundreds or thousands of patients because the human body is marvellous, but freakish things do occur, right? We know this. So looking at the number of people involved can give you a rough picture about how reliable the results are, right? Look at how long the study ran for, because here's the thing that gets up my nose, and you see it all the time in adverts, like beauty research studies, okay, where they'll say, oh, 90% of women say this gave them longer, fuller hair. And the number of people in the study is like 15. The study ran for a month. I'm like... Maybe their hair just feels nicer because they're washing it with free shampoo. Free is the best price. And like 90% of 15 people is not that many people. Yeah. It's real easy to be like, oh, because this is free, I'm going to use it every day. And I'm going to, because it was free, I'm going to like take a little extra like other product and put it in there because I didn't have to pay Mm -hmm. for the shampoo. So I can, you know, anyway, sorry. And I also got to go and, and speak to a, a hairdresser for like the first day and mm-hmm. and like learn about my hair type mm-hmm. and how I should best take care of it or, or like whatever it is. There may be other things that are involved in it, right? Yep. So, uh, yeah. Looking critically at how a study is run, you don't have to be a statistician to, to do a little bit of picking apart of the methodology. Um, you can look at how many people were involved, how long the study ran for, what kind of endpoints were there? Were there surrogate endpoints or were they, you know, clinically measurable endpoints? Was it a patient reported outcome, which is really important? How does the patient feel? Because even if the patient's blood pressure is through the roof, if they're having a good time, all right, things like this. If you are a statistician, then you can look at the statistics as well and see how robust they are. But Mm-hmm. Not everybody is. If you, Lauren, want to know about, <laughs> or anyone that's listening, not just Lauren, if you want to know about current research studies, particularly if you're a patient and you want to know what's out there in your indication or disease, right? You're thinking, I'm at the end of my tether. None of the existing treatments work for me. What else What else can I do? Here's the bit of good news. It's a legal requirement in many countries, including the US and the UK, that all studies have to be registered on a publicly available database. So, for example, in the UK, for clinical trials, it's a condition of your ethics approval that your study has to be registered on one of these publicly available databases. It's good practice for all studies, but it's required in the UK for clinical trials. So, for example, the American one that you may have heard of is clinicaltrials.gov. You don't have to be a US-based company, a study that's running in the US or a site in the US to use that database, though. I can run a study in the UK and register it on clinicaltrials.gov. It's internationally available. There are other registries, for example, 
ISR, CTN, partner with the HRA, the Health Research Authority in the UK, to automatically register clinical trials for investigational medicinal products when they're submitted in the UK. So if you submit for ethics approval in the UK, you can get your study automatically registered by this partnership between the HRA and ISRCTN onto the ISRCTN database. It's just something that they offer you for free. ISRCTN? I don't remember what it stands for. Wow. Um, thank you, Google. Originally, ISRCTN stood for International Standard Randomised Controlled Trial Number. However, over the years, the scope of this registry has widened beyond randomised controlled trials to include any study designed to assess the efficacy of health interventions in a human population. It is a registry containing the basic set of data items deemed essential to describe a clinical study at its inception, beginning, uh, following the requirements set out by the World Health Organization and the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors <laughs> guidelines. I'm just reading off their website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's another registry, but it's just kind it's of another a, free registry. It's an international yeah. free registry. Yeah. That's okay. Okay. Yes. So what you can do is you can go onto any one of those registries and have a look. You can type in your indication. You can type in where you are geographically. You can type in like your doctor and see what other research studies they're running. And then if you find one that you're interested in, go speak to your healthcare provider about it. Because often, unless your doctor is the doctor running the study, you're going to need to be referred by your doctor to that doctor to say, hey, here's my patient. I think they might be a good fit for this. Also, if you're interested in participating in research, speak to your doctor or medical provider about it because they may know some things that are maybe coming down the pipeline, may be able to guide you too. And it's probably good for them to know that you're considering it. If you are a healthy volunteer and you wish to participate in medical research, similarly, you can Google phase one studies near me, healthy volunteers, and see what's out there. See where the units are. See what you fancy doing. Okay. Okay. Next question from Lauren. Bestie Lauren. How do they figure out drug-drug interactions, like the contraindications of you can't take this with that? Another great question from my bestie, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) You're mad at me, at least. It's hilarious. I've noticed since we were six years old, okay? (laughs) Well, I've known her for like two years. And we can share. It's fine. She's wonderful. Lauren, I feel, should have a say in this. Yeah. Well, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, Okay, so how do we figure out drug-drug interactions? Various different ways. Best case scenario, we want to find out before we stick it in a person that's got both of those chemicals in their system, right? Either we discover during preclinical testing how the drug works, right? Or how it's metabolized, what it does in the body, which receptors or chemicals or enzymes interacts with it. So we know what pathways it's messing around in. And then... We have to look at all of the other molecules. We scan through the database and we see where there are overlaps. It is kind of as as, as simple and as complicated as that, right? So if we know the grapefruit example, right? The reason that grapefruit is uh, for certain drugs like a known problem is because the pathway that it blocks is a really common digestion or breakdown pathway for molecules. So we know based on what grapefruit juice or grapefruit does it blocks or inhibits that pathway. So that if you're taking a drug that is metabolized through that pathway, you're going to end up with the buildup of active drug. It's not going to get broken down and digested as quickly, Mm -hmm. right? So similarly, if if I have a drug in my body that 
um, hangs out in a particular receptor, and then I take another drug that that needs that receptor to do a certain thing in order to work, but the receptor is blocked by my first drug, drug B isn't going to work. Okay. I said either at the beginning. The other way is if you if you know how a drug works, you can also look at other drugs that work similarly and know that those two things shouldn't be taken together, right? So if you are taking uh, warfarin, which is a blood thinner, you're not also going to want to take heparin, which is another blood thinner, because okay. then your blood is just going to be real, real thin, mm-hmm. okay? And similarly, if you're already on blood thinners, you don't want to take anything where a side effect of it might be to thin your blood. Right. Even if the indication that you're taking it for is not blood thinning, if it also does that, don't combine it with something that is deliberately thinning your blood. Yeah, so would it be fair to say, like, a lot of the things that they might say, like, oh, don't take this with this, is because they have some sort of overlap of side effects or something and not because there's actually been a study that says if you take this blood thinner and this drug that has a potential side effect of blood thinning, Mm -hmm. you'll definitely have a worse outcome. It's more of like, well, we can't take that risk because we know like this is a blood thinning, you know, has that that outcome as well kind of thing. Yeah. So I would say usually when a drug is initially on the market, it would be the situation of we, we can't take the risk. Yeah. And once the drug's been out there for a while and has been used in real medical world where, you know what, a patient has come into the hospital and they have been taking warfarin for mm-hmm. six years, but they did not tell the doctor that and the doctor dosed them with it and they were fine. Yeah. Then you start to collect case reports where actually the patients were fine and then maybe you run a study and prove that it doesn't, it doesn't do that and so you're okay and mm-hmm. then you can take that one off the forbidden list, gotcha. right? Mm-hmm. But usually we don't know everything about medicine we don't know everything about drug drug interactions and usually they'd rather play it safe than Mm -hmm. not but for some of the obvious examples like i've given there if you take heparin and warfarin together you're going to have a bad time Mm -hmm. and there's no kind of ifs ands or buts about it okay worst case scenario so i said best case scenario was we're going to discover it early on so we know and we can we can stop patients from from taking both together um the, the, the kind of the worst way we can find out about drug-drug interactions or drug-other stuff interactions is you'll see adverse events in patients um, who have taken your drug and then you do the detective work or, or the doctor housework um, <laughs> and you identify the common item between all of the patients experiencing the event. It could be a similar drug, right? It could be um, that they're all also eating grapefruit every morning for breakfast it could be that they're all working in a particular place that exposes them to a chemical it could be could be could be could be lots of different things um but but what you need to work out is what that common factor is and you you know in furtherance to your question previously elise about about what we know is we do know quite a bit about how most types of molecules right move Mm -hmm. around the body and interact and where there are overlaps so you probably will start off more cautiously and then try and work out if you can let those two things happen together. Got it. For example, if you're taking a medicine that has a sedative effect, you don't want to combine that with alcohol because it's also a sedative. It's nothing to do with how those two drugs interact with each other. It's how both of them interact with your body. Mm-hmm. And by having both sedatives in yourself, you'll have an increased risk of adverse events like falls or driving accidents or overdose. Got it. Okay. Cool. Cool. Question from shocking all parties. Lauren, Debbie Mm. mentioned. (laughs) uh, I happen to know from direct messages are are just me and Lauren's chat that this has been on Lauren's mind a lot since this question was sent in. (laughs) So she's smart. She's curious, right? 
Very smart, very curious. She's probably bothered by this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very bothered by this. It's, my answer's not going to make it better. Yeah, no. Every every few like every week or so, I get like a I'm still thinking about Debbie saying this kind of text mm-hmm. message from her. Debbie mentioned pharma only funding twenty percent of research. Does that mean they only get twenty percent of profits, or do they get to profit off the research done by non pharma companies? Okay. Another great and complicated question, and this is where everything gets a bit murky, because remember when we're talking about research, we've got that big, broad umbrella. It's loads of different things, and it could include, I'm running a research study to find out whether this drug that's widely available, if it also interacts with that drug that's widely available, and both of those drugs have been on the market for 25 years, so they're both out of patent, and nobody's making blockbuster money off them anymore, but it's important research to happen. Okay, so that's the first thing to say is that kind of research probably wouldn't be pharma funded, but would still be important. And also, often when we're talking about running a clinical study, we use the words sponsor because that's what's in GCP. The sponsor is the organisation or the individual who's responsible for running and funding the study. But sponsoring the study in practical terms is not the same as funding the study because you could be sponsoring a study, running it, organising it, leading it, and getting funding from a charity, for example, Mm -hmm. who legally don't want to sponsor the study, but they'll give you the money and say, go do the thing. And similarly, sponsoring and funding aren't the same, which is parallel to holding a manufacturing authorization, which says I can manufacture this drug, which is not the same as the company that holds the marketing authorization, which is I can sell the drug. And it's the last one, the marketing authorization, that determines who profits off the thing because they're the ones that can sell the drug. Okay. Okay. So I might be a manufacturing authorization holder and I can manufacture the drug in India, Austria, America, uh, Azerbaijan, wherever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you really sell, uh, run the company that can sell the drug in every country in the world and you're the one that's going to profit from that. You'll mm-hmm. pay me for my services, but you'll be the one pocketing the profit, okay? A pharma company um, can hold a marketing authorization, but a charity may sponsor and fund a study using that pharma company's drug for various different reasons. For example, the charity may believe that the drug might be helpful to patients and so want to research it. But if it gets the approval to be used in a new indication, yes, the pharma company will profit off that. So short answer, Lauren, is pharma companies can profit off research done and funded by non-pharma situations. Usually, if you're non-pharma and you want to do a study on a pharma drug, you're going to go to them and ask them to partner with you or give permission or whatever, because you want access to the supplies that you need to run your study. And you might say, okay, you give us the drug or at cost price or free, and we'll give you the results at the end, which you can put in your portfolio that may help you expand the label for this drug and make you more money. Okay. A little bit more information because I I don't want Lauren to come yelling at us (laughs) um, because this doesn't sound great, right? That 20% figure came from some data from 2021 about research conducted in the UK that was reviewed by the Health Research Authority. The HRA in the UK are responsible for making sure that studies that need it have an ethics review and they work alongside similar organisations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland so that the research practically can be conducted. So it's not a global figure is the first thing to say. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether I made it clear at the time. It also isn't a completely unique UK figure because what happens in one country, in my experience, is pretty similar to what happens elsewhere, right? And it is pretty interesting to know that only about a fifth of the research in England, UK, is commercially funded, right? Here's, the, here's where the rest of the money comes from. It's funded by a lot of different government organisations, such as 
in the UK, we have the Medicines Research Council or the National Institute for Health Research or charities like Cancer Research UK fund a buck ton of research. Mm -hmm. So, yes, pharma companies can profit from research that they didn't pay for if the research is conducted about a product that they own the license to. Mm -hmm. Because any research that proves that the thing is better may increase their sales. But... There will 100% be some research studies that are never intended to make a profit. If we are looking at validating a free-to-use disease-specific questionnaire, for example, right? No pharma company is going to want to pay for that study, mm-hmm. but a, a charity or a, or a, a government organisation would. Similarly, if we're looking at confirming which methodology in surgery is better, there's no there's no opportunity really to profit from that. It's just better for patients all ways round. Now, I don't know what kind of percentage that is in terms of the research studies that are conducted, but it's certainly not nothing. That 100% also includes research done as part of PhDs or other academic institution research, which could be uh, for devices or drugs, but may not be. Could be on anything. Right. Okay. So just because only 20% of research is funded by pharma, it doesn't mean that they only get 20% of the profits, but it also doesn't mean that they get a minimum of 20% of the profits. Mm-hmm. It's it's murky. Now, we know that they, they do make tons of money because we can all see their their financial accounts that are publicly available so i would definitely bet that their profits are substantially higher than 20 percent. because often what what we what will happen and i know this from what we see in the news but also my personal experience is pharma will often partner or collaborate with academics great example of this is the oxford astrazeneca vaccine which was a collaboration between az and oxford uni similarly pfizer's vaccine for covid started its life as a potential candidate for a biotech firm called BioNTech who then partnered with Pfizer when they needed the money to go big on development. And this is something that in 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 many early drug development situations, this is real common, right? You'll have a some kind of clever academic somewhere and they'll discover a molecule or they'll see a molecule doing something super cool and they'll be able to get funding to get that molecule mm-hmm. through phase one, maybe phase two, do a ton of the preclinical stuff, right? Before that, obviously, uh, uh, get it into a few human beings and then they realise how big they need to go for phase phase two or phase three and they don't have the money for that. And that's the point at which either they will sell the intellectual property to pharma or they'll partner with pharma in order to say, you give us the money for this and then when it ta- it's time to go to the market, we'll make an agreement, right, about who gets which, which percentage of the profits. Mm-hmm. So it's like an investment for the pharma company in that way. And obviously in any time, in any situation where there's an investment, someone wants a return on that investment. Drug development for sure has risks. Um, not every drug gets to phase three, but if I was Pfizer or any other <laughs> a pharma company, I'd be quite happy to let a smaller biotech company or some yeah. professor at university do the preclinical, do the first in human, and then I can swoop in and either buy the IP or partner with it and yeah. uh, money in my pocket. Yeah. Here's the thing that is going to get up Lauren's nose probably <laughs> even more because it gets right up mine. Yeah. And we've talked about this before is pharma companies are incentivized to develop the new thing, right? Find the new molecule, the new exciting drug or whatever. But actually, a lot of really necessary and, incre- and incredible research is, is not funded by pharma. Mm-hmm. And pharma don't do a great job of funding the stuff that really needs it because it doesn't make them money. Yeah. And we have to acknowledge that. Right. So here's an excellent example. If your friend Elise <laughs> sends you a video at 3 a.m., watch it. Your time. England time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure, sure. But it's still 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, <laughs> luckily, I was up anyway because oh. my dog needed the toilet. Uh, it's fr- it was a John Green video. Um, and so I learned about the NTB trials, which are sponsored by Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. Here's your two minute primer on tuberculosis or TB, the world's leading infectious 
disease killer, basically. Some strains of TB are resistant to multiple drugs, antibiotics, and are called multidrug resistant TB, MDR-TB. Conventional treatments for this multidrug resistant TB really long, like up to two years, not that effective, like 59% treatment success in 2018. Terrible side effects, including acute psychosis and permanent deafness to treat this bacterial infection because it's it's a really, really nasty bacterial infection. And these treatments up to 24 months include patients taking up to 14,000 tablets and or months of painful daily injections right so they run for a long time they're going to be stupidly expensive because of that and difficult because like pills or injections every day is really really hard and therefore really hard to implement okay yeah what we know about tb is it is really common in certain countries and often in those countries are the places where implementing a 24-month complicated expensive treatment regime isn't possible yeah Okay. These NTB studies, NTB, I don't think I enunciated that clearly. NTB is in, let's finish tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. These, these two studies recruited over a thousand patients in countries where TB is really common and treatment is, is difficult. So TB hotspots or countries with significant TB burdens, not, not the places that, that you would necessarily think of running research studies, but mm-hmm. like they deserve it. So it's countries like Pakistan, Peru, Georgia, Vietnam and India. And the reason these studies are so amazing is because they're looking at combinations of treatments using some new cool products on the market, but Mm -hmm. also some stuff that's been out there a while, trying to find shorter treatment regimes that are injection free and that are more effective. So instead of treating for 24 months, can we do it in six to nine months? Wow. Yeah. And who's funding this? Not pharma companies. Who's going to benefit? Depending on the drug, right? Yeah, some pharma companies are going to benefit. Because if it's one of their new antibiotics that's just been on the market the last couple of years, okay, they may make some money off of this. Yeah. Some pharma companies, like I think Johnson & Johnson, has struck a deal to allow generic vers- versions of its yeah. tuberculosis drug, Bendaquiline, to be supplied to low-income countries. But if the, if the standard of care to say, oh, we used to give drug A for 24 months, now we give drug A and drug B, or we give drug P and drug C for six months, whoever manufactures those drugs is going to profit because somewhere in the world they won't have the generic agreement, right? If yeah. e- Even if in all of the low-income countries they say, yeah, you can, you can make the generic and you can pocket the one pound off that or whatever, or they give it to a government and the government manufacture it and don't make a profit... If that standard of care applies in the UK or Germany or uh, the USA or Japan or somewhere that does have money, then the pharma company is going to profit. Yeah, I mean, if you take, I mean, 24 months down to like six to nine months, then because if I recall correctly from the video, a lot of the drugs used are the same, but in different combination, right? And so, which I know you just explained, Um, and there's different ones being introduced and they're trying like, what combination can we use to make this shorter? So the reason I'm getting there is like theoretically even if you're taking two more pills a month you're still cutting down the number of months you're taking pills by three quarters yeah um and so taking a few more a month won't equal the same amount as if you were taking a few less but for three quarters longer or you know four times three times longer whatever um so that you know it I, i guess just to kind of highlight like it's it's actually 
bad for the companies currently profiting off of this, right? Because they're losing three quarters of the chunk of treatment time that they're making each individual pill that they sell is brings them money, brings them income. Yep. Yeah. And this is why this is why what what pharma companies are motivated to do, right? To make the new thing rather than make the thing that they've already got the best it can yeah. be. Because if you can yes, if you can introduce a new miracle drug that's an 18-month course, but it wipes the other ones out. Now you're still profiting off the ones that are 24 months and need all these things, and you're profiting off the 18-month thing that people can afford in some countries, and it's win-win mm -hmm. for profits. But if we just say, oh, actually, this 24-month regime is too long and too complicated. What if we did it this way instead? You're losing 18 months of profit time. Yep. And there's also the fact that these treatments aren't very effective yeah. but the combo of treatments that were researched in this study for the shorter periods were yeah were either more effective like one of them i think was the same and two were more effective and some were less effective um when you go and look at the results but there are options that are more effective in that shorter treatment window wow so yeah. and not and without injections which is huge if you're trying to in low-income countries or, or particularly rural communities right if you're trying to get people uh, people to, to, yeah. to stick to a, a dosing regime often these injections are are painful yeah. and they're hard to administer so nah yeah. take a tablet great so I, those results look really promising and yeah. exciting and it's just another it's just a, i just have such big feelings about the pharma industry of course yeah and i work in it so it pays my bills so i'm probably an enormous hypocrite but no it, I mean, it's not happy. we've said it many, many times, like, we have to do this research, right? And the the problem is not that companies are incentivized to do research, it's that they are decentivized, or that the only thing that incentivizes research is money. And that's where, you know, these types of things like, yeah, this is, this is absolutely an ethics and a philosophy ravine kind of question of like, at what point, you know, do we balance human good against profits and like obviously we're in a, it's just such a nightmare capitalist hellscape of a world right now where profits are the only mm -hmm. things motivating but there are worlds right there's no world where pharma companies don't exist that still progresses medical treatment and medical and, and finds cures and things like we need clinical research and yes. we need to find ways that profit bottom lines are not the only things that incentivize which studies we do. It's interesting that you said that there's no world in which pharma companies don't exist because I can see that world. We saw it in COVID. Yeah, you're right. Let me rephrase. There's no world where clinical trials don't exist and Correct. we continue Correct. to work. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. And currently but we that... we could for sure yeah, do that without with, pharma. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're totally right. Nice. Okay. It's just how ingrained it is in us to think like, we've got to have profits. We've got to have companies. Yeah, you've got to think radically. Yeah. You've got to yeah. throw out your assumptions. Liberate your own mind from these types of capitalist assumptions, for sure. Okay, new question. Right. From... Lauren, curious to hear about how the phase one, two, three success rates have changed over time. Okay, for this one, uh, Bestie, I fell in a <laughs> rabbit hole, but it was an interesting one. Um, and it was a, also an annoying one because many of the papers that I looked at measured success of the one, two, three phases, right, differently. So some looked at like, okay, if I, what's the probability of me going from phase one to phase two, phase two to phase three? Some looked at the probability of launch. So if I'm at phase one, what's the likelihood that my drug's going to get its marketing authorization and mm -hmm. be allowed to be launched? 
<gasps> Here is the short answer. Um, the data I could find started in 1996, which was when ICHGCP was published. Yes, drugs were tested and approved before then, but a bit more piecemeal, less internationally viewed. So we don't have big collections of available data, but we do from 1996. So not great, but you'll live, I'm sure. In 1997, the three-year rolling average was for about 68% of phase one, 46% of phase two, and 71% of phase three studies to progress on to the next phase. So that's phase one to two, two to three, three to license. The general trend from there to about 2010 was downwards. So not not such good for success rates, right? So to about 58% for phase one, 30% for phase two, and 57% of phase three. Interestingly... From 2010 to date, we're in 2023, there's been a pretty good recovery, but we're not quite back to the 1997 numbers. We're moving okay. in that direction. The trend is upwards. So, Lauren, I'm going to read your mind and you're going to ask me why. <laughs> Between 2007 and 2010 was a time just when I joined the industry. Everyone saw me coming and they thought, hey, uh, yeah. now's the time. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that many major pharma companies conducted big transformation efforts, right? Moving with the times. And they pruned their pipelines what does that mean they threw a bunch of products out of development that they didn't think were worth continuing mm. development on so that downward trend was artificially inflated by a few products not being taken forwards even if the results were okay because of the push towards exceptional products or wonder drugs mm. and that push has led to the later increase or improvement since 2010 um, especially with investments in preclinical testing and some advancements in what we know going on, um, because we're now really making sure that we're not taking a drug into any human testing unless we're relatively confident that mm -hmm. it's going to go the way. So basically they raised the standards and said, yeah. if it doesn't clear this bar, we're not even yeah. progressing it. So failure rates became higher because we raised the bar of what it takes to pass in, yeah, initially, mm -hmm. but now, yeah, but now right. if we're failing in preclinical, right. then that means right. that what we're taking through is getting better yeah. and better and better. Yeah. The problem with that, obviously, is that there's going to be so many products that could be life changing yeah. that, get... that don't meet that artificial standard yeah. for whatever reason. Of course. Interestingly, also, the number of drugs approved each year has increased, even though the number of new drugs entering development has nosedived minus 358 from 2009 to 2017 now i don't know whether we're going to see the results of that nose diving new drugs entering development in a few years because of course it takes a few years mm -hmm. for all of the drugs to get through development so i don't know if you know in 2025 we're going to see oh there were 358 less drugs approved this year mm -hmm. i don't i don't think so but it could have a knock-on effect Maybe because the molecules entering development, right, are just the bestest of the bestest of the bestest. La creme de la creme a la Edgar, <laughs> as the kids would say. For 2001 to 2012, on average, 25 new molecular entities, NMEs, were approved each year by the FDA. Every time I see NME, I think of the New Musical Express, which was a magazine that I read as a kid because I was real into music. And I'm like, oh, but it's not that. It's new molecular entities. So 2001 to 2012, 25 were approved. In 2012, some bright spark looked forwards and went, I think it's going to be like 35 a year by 2016. But already by 2014, it was 41. In 2015, it was 45. Mm -hmm. The most recent data I could find was 59 new drugs approved by the wow. FDA in 2018, which is more than double what they did in 2012. Mm -hmm. That's wild. Yeah. So lots more drugs are being approved, even though fewer are going into development. And I think that's because of these 
artificial standards maybe right of, of what we're taking in which is which is going to i think continue to improve those success rates Mm -hmm. i hope that answers your question lauren okay a question from lauren (laughs) um i'd love to hear you discuss the ethics of a phase three study that is placebo controlled so i could be signing up for something that basically isn't treating me at all yep that is the situation if there's nothing else on the market then you have no option but to have a placebo controlled study right Mm -hmm. so that is a situation where that may be the case so if covid for example, mm-hmm. before now, right? We're, we're back in 2020. I know we don't want to be there, but let's cast <laughs> our minds back. Okay, we're doing a phase three vaccine study. There is no existing treatment or vaccine yeah. for it. So we have to compare to placebo. Is it ethical? Shrug, because we don't have another option. The other option is don't do the research and a whole bunch more people die. So I, I think in that situation where there's nothing else available, mm-hmm. it is ethical. If you're a patient with a condition and there's no treatment, right, I'd take a 50-50 shot of getting something that might work. But also, here's the thing, placebo control and study does not necessarily mean 50-50. It might be Mm -hmm. 25% get placebo and 75% get active. And in that case, you've got nothing to lose Mm -hmm. because you've got no treatment. But generally speaking, in my experience, if you're in phase three and there is another suitable treatment option, one exists, it's on the market, you will have an active comparator rather than placebo because all of the regulators want that patients want that doctors want that right okay your drug's better than placebo big fucking whoop i'm not taking a placebo i'm taking that drug is your drug better than that because if it isn't i'm going to continue to take that right so it's actually better um for the pharma company for the patients for everybody for them to compare to the active comparator if the active exists yes okay that's partially for ethical reasons partially for patient safety right if i'm on a drug and i get taken off it and given a placebo am i going to get sicker Mm -hmm. maybe And it also behooves or benefits the pharma company to be able to show their drug is better to the next closest competitor. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, more philosophically and less practically, there's the question of just, you know, in general, like the the human experience of being told like, hey, there's this study 7525, you know, that you'll get the active versus the placebo. Um, and you get the you end up in the placebo group. You don't know you're in the placebo group for obvious reasons. Like that's all practicality. But the human experience of the hope that can be raised and all those things, and then to have those things dashed and potentially die from the outcome, right? Versus people and and right. The flip side, as you've already noted, is that without the treatment, you would these things would progress anyway, and you would die without treatment. So the the course is the same for you, except that at the point of signing up for the study there was a hope introduced that now it will be different. And I'm I'm not saying that this means we don't do these studies, right? I'm just saying that there is something there of like, I don't know, just a, just an additional piece um, of the human experience that we can't deny is part of it and that we have to like look at and say like this, this element of it is just one piece of this thing that will always be present in these types of studies. And will be heartbreaking for people who look at and see like, you know, my my spouse was in the placebo group and died and these seven other people that were in their group get to live. And yeah, we knew that going in, but it doesn't change the fact that like we had this little shred of hope that we didn't have before. I don't know. I don't think it's, um, I'm not trying to say like <laughs> that that's 
some reason to stop or to change because I hear your practicality argument and 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 points, Debbie, and, and mm. completely agree with you. Um, and I also just think like, yeah, there's just a certain acknowledgement of that and that... Um, it sucks that we don't have all the answers to all the questions. Of course, really. it always does. But I think... I've 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 not participated in a clinical study where that is the situation, but yeah, I had a very close friend who did. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away, um, and I think that point of hope, yeah, is valid, but it should be handled by the consent discussions with the yeah. doctor, in that they should say very frankly, in whatever the situation may be, right? Here's what happens if we do. Here's what happens if we don't. Yeah, it's your choice. I also think. Um, and this is a wider point generally, I think sometimes doctors aren't great at that piece of communication yeah. about the risk piece, and particularly when it comes to cancer, right? If you look at, um, I think it's I think it's Dr. Hannah Fry does some really good stuff about like the, the, the data risk rate. So if they say, you know, you're X percent more likely to survive five more years if you have this treatment. And, it, it, you know, it's, it sounds incredible, but it's actually not not that much or, or, or something like mm-hmm. this, right? You go through this big, long treatment regime and actually is it worth it? But I, I I don't disagree with anything that you said, yeah. Elise. But I do think that in certain situations, right, it, it, if you've got a disease or or cancer or something mm-hmm. that's really terrible, you'll take it. Yeah. And I mean, for something like the COVID vaccines, my understanding was that the the, the patients who got the placebo then got the, yeah. the the jab as well. Right. So kind of no harm, no foul. And if it works, and you got the placebo and you survive long enough. Mm-hmm. you can then get access yeah. to the licensed product. Yeah. The the, the difficult bit, right, is yeah. if you survive long enough, but then maybe the drug didn't work. Yeah. And you didn't survive long enough because the drug didn't work. Absolutely. Which still sucks. Yeah. I think, I, th- I think we have to accept that death is a, a unfortunate side effect of the human condition. Absolutely. And, and yeah, um, I think that the risk communication element of it is really where... Mm, that's the key bit. Right, because yeah. it's mm-hmm. not the things that come before or after the risk communication. It's the it's the point of the risk communication that perhaps is the is where, like, this ethical quandary is introduced, right? Of, like, how... And, and I think, as a whole, humans are bad at risk communication. Uh, this is a studied, yeah. Yeah, yeah, known yeah. thing about humans and how we perceive and understand risk and also how we latch on to and perceive and understand hope and it's okay it's just again it's part of the human condition and i think that as you've pointed out like yeah i i think it the consent the point of consent and the doctors talking through um the informed consent with patients and stuff that's where this has to be handled and i think it reopens a question that i think has been sitting in the philosophy ravine for a long time around what consent really means when there is a metaphorical gun to your head of I'm not mm-hmm. going to survive more than a few years. Um, and so my only or a few weeks or a few weeks. And so, um, you know, I really have this like this no other option. Is that truly consent or is that no other option? Right. And yeah. I now, again, I know that this is different than a literal gun to your head because someone's making a yes. choice to hold that versus cancer happens. Um, and yes. so there's so much more and at there. any point the patient can refuse treatment. Yeah. Like if, if your doctor's saying to you, hey, you could go on this study, you've no other option, you can go on this study, and the patient goes, no, I do have another option, I can just yeah. refuse treatment. Yep. And some people choose to do that. Some people choose to do that even outside of clinical studies, exactly. right? They say, you know what, I don't want to go through chemo, I don't th- want to put my family through that, or whatever it may be, right? Yep. Um, and, and there's always that choice. Yeah. So I, 
I firmly believe that consent is still a thing, mm-hmm. even even when there's no other option. Yeah. Because the patient, the other, there is always the other right. option, and the other option is no treatment. There's no treatment. That's true. Let's press on. Yep. Debbie, for the Elavidus, uh, for, is it Duchenne's? Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Mm-hmm. I was there. Duchenne's muscular <laughs> dystrophy. <laughs> Will some patients get placebo for this potentially life-changing saving treatment? That doesn't seem very ethical. Uh, great question. So I think in the episode where we talked about this, I wasn't clear. Um, and the answer is, I went on to clinicaltrials.gov for this particular study. Uh, it's called Embark, if you're interested. All patients will receive the active drug. Oh my God, what is the word? The group of patients, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the However many patients there were, the group of them were split in two. And the first lot got active and the other lot got placebo. And then, oh, switcheroony. Mm. And the second lot got active and the first lot got placebo. So each were dosed twice. And each group received an active dose and an placebo dose to right to really avoid that ethical quandary of, mm-hmm. oh my God, we're giving kids with this degenerative disorder potentially a placebo. Mm-hmm. No, uh, it's it, it also helps encourage participation. They're definitely getting the drug being tested. And because it's crossover design, right? Now, normally with crossover design, you don't want to use it in something that's degenerative. Mm-hmm. But if you have enough patients statistically, mm-hmm. you can still draw those comparisons. And it's helpful to have the data from the same patient. One gets active, they get active, uh, and then a year later they get placebo because you can do a really good look at um, adverse events. Yeah. Right? What's actually caused by the drug and what's just caused by the process of having this injection. Yeah. So, yeah, for that for that particular treatment, all of the patients receive the active drug potentially at a different time. Okay, great. Do you want to read this one since it's for me? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can answer this one. Yeah, sure. Okay, so this is a question from Andrew. In episode five, Elise's Corner, Narcan, you spoke about methadone clinics. What are those? What's a methadone? So methadone is a synthetic opioid and it's used to treat chronic pain, uh, but it is also used to treat opioid use disorder or OUD, basically opioid addiction. And it relieves cravings and removes withdrawal symptoms. So for people who are, um, who have an opioid use disorder, if they take a daily dose of methadone, then they will no, the idea is that they will not crave or have withdrawal symptoms, which will reduce their the chemical dependency, psychological dependency on the drug. So for OUD treatment, opioid use disorder, OUD treatment, you take methadone every day and it can be delivered in a few different ways, uh, liquid, powder, tablets. And it is an opioid agent itself. So it is in the U.S. a controlled substance. Um, I don't actually know anything about opioid treatment um, internationally, but in the U.S. It it's is... the same in the U.K. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a controlled substance, um, and so it can only be taken under supervision of a certified opioid, op- opioid treatment provider, or OTP. So a methadone clinic is somewhere you can go to get your treatment, which is likely to be part of a wider harm reduction program, um, or like a mental health clinic, a community mental health center, oftentimes offer uh, methadone services as well. So methadone treatment for OUD is only one part of the larger program. So a patient will take daily methadone along with other treatments or medications as prescribed by their doctor for OUD. Um, And so the clinic may also be a part of a psychiatric clinic and provide administration or oversight of patients during and after the treatment, or they may dispense the medication for the patient to go home and take it. So a few additional uh, things to know about methadone is you should not take it with alcohol. You should not try, or you should try not to miss doses because um, you, it, again, it's it's a it's still an opioid. And so it does not really uh, wean you off of 
the chemical dependency as quickly as other types of treatments theoretically could. So you, um, by missing it, you will still experience the craving and, and withdrawal symptoms. Um, or, you know, that's, that's tough because places can be closed or there's a fire or, you know, all sorts of reasons why um, it can be hard to not miss a dose. And sometimes there are special cases where um, you can get more than one dose at a time. For example, many of the people experiencing homelessness in Denver for uh when we know that there's going to be a lot of snow can get two or three doses that they can take with them so that they don't have to try to make it in, um, you know, three or four feet of snow from wherever they're sheltering to the clinic and potentially suffer very bad health outcomes that way. Um, And you shouldn't take more than prescribed because it can result in uh, an opioid overdose. It is still an opioid. Uh, There you go. That's methadone. There you go. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Our final question for the Q&A. Uh, for Elise, was Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park a scientist? And the answer actually came from um, <laughs> my husband, Mike, um, because we had a whole mm-hmm. conversation about this after we mm-hmm. recorded the podcast. And Mike says he is now willing to concede that Jeff Goldblum's character was indeed a scientist because he's a mathematician. OK, so is this so just like go. a trivia question for me to like have in my back pocket for future... Yes. Batman's a scientist too. Write in if you disagree, Michael. All right. Those are all the questions that we got. So big thank you if you sent in a question or just, you know what, if you listen, if you download our podcast, if you you engage with it, we genuinely uh, appreciate it. We hope you enjoy it. If you have any questions that we can add to the backlog for next time or you want to get in touch with us to argue about Jeff Goldblum (laughs) or anything else, um, please feel free to email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. Please do subscribe so you can get the next episode automatically. And of course, rate and review. Uh, You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page at clinical.research.intro. And you can check out our website. Uh, Elise has done an amazing job managing that and making it look all hip and cool. Because (laughs) like Elise, who is hip and cool, cool. so is the website. There's tons of information on there. You can like find the episodes and transcripts if um, they would help you out. That is at intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com finally a big thank you from us to our lovely friend Sam Winnie for letting us use their incredible music for our intro and outro it's so catchy I was singing it around the house the other day <laughs> yes so that's it Q&A done Quasits and ASMR good job team now go take a long rest yes D&D jokes <laughs> alright so uh, thanks and goodbye from me Debbie say goodbye Elise goodbye Elise